Well, good morning. This is Pastor Eric Sorensen coming to you from my office on Tuesday morning, May 22nd. Is that right? Is it May 22nd already? I think it is. I really am actually not sure as I'm saying this to you, but I think it is. Um, hey, a couple things before we get into today's devotion. First of all, thank you for those of you who have bought the Sinner Saint devotional. Um, we have uh, seen sales that I think were beyond expectations so far, which is awesome because we want to get this message in this word into as many hands as possible. So don't be afraid to share about it or to let people know if you're picking up a copy. Um, we've been excited to see all the people that are getting it and the response so far has been awesome. So again, thank you so much for those of you who have bought one. If you haven't yet, go out and grab it. And the Kindle version is available now, by the way. You can get that on Amazon, I think, for $5.99 or something like that. So if you're a Kindle reader, that's an easier way to go uh, for you. Uh, secondly, had a wonderful time at the Christhold Fast one-day event in Minot, North Dakota. Why not? Minot uh, was in the house. We had a great, uh, great showing. And, uh, man, everybody uh, who gave talks just really uh, exalted the gospel of our Lord in wonderfully profound ways and uh it was it's just fun to listen to all the talks when i go there i mean i i of course i love being able to be one of the speakers it's always fun but just being a listener is a blast and um so great weekend there i got back late last night from the middle of the country and i'm now back on the east coast here with you to look today at first peter chapter three verses eight and nine and this is the way it reads peter says finally all of you have unity of mind sympathy brotherly love a tender heart and a humble mind do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling but on the contrary bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing Good morning danielle so that's it. That is the passage, 1 Peter 3, 8, and 9. I, we could, of course, go all the way to verse 17 where there's sort of a break uh, or a, a distinction in the subject matter. But the fact is, like, this has a lot right here, and I, wanted, I don't want to try and cover too much in one time. So uh, one of the main reasons Peter wrote his letter uh, that we've been studying was, in fact, to encourage those who were suffering persecution. We've saw this in the very first chapter where he mentioned it as a matter of fact he does in the second chapter too and now without fail in the third chapter he mentions suffering and persecution and and this won't be the last time that he mentions it it is just a constant recurring theme and so that's why most scholars say the purpose of the writing was to shore up believers faith good morning glenna good morning Whitney. Um, and the reason being, it was because the persecution was ramping up at the time. It was, historians will tell us, right around this time that Nero began his persecution against the Christians, blaming them for some sort of fire that had burned throughout Rome, even though he knew that they had nothing to do with it, and even most people knew that they had nothing to do with it, but he found Christians to be a convenient scapegoat, and so he pr punished them publicly with brutal torture. They were maimed. They were burnt alive. They were uh, eaten alive. They were drowned. I mean, you name it, they experienced it. And of course, it's very easy in our fairly comfortable 
modern Western world especially, uh, to fool ourselves into thinking that that kind of thing doesn't happen today or that kind of persecution doesn't exist. But in fact, according to the Voice of the Martyrs, a Christian organization that exists to support the persecuted church, there, there's actually more persecution of the church today than any other time in recorded history. At least as far as we know, Christians are more persecuted today, being killed at a higher rate today for their faith than at any other time. Whether it mean they're a second-class citizen, forced to pay extra taxes, forced to go into some sort of in bond, uh, bonded servanthood, uh, or being tortured or killed, Christians do experience trials and tribulations. That said, realistically, in America, we probably will not go through the same kinds of things, at least not yet, that, uh, that our brothers and sisters do around the world in some places. Though I will say, sometimes the way you hear some preachers talk on TV, you'd think that Christianity was on the verge of extinction in America, and it's just not true at all. It's just, they say this kind of stuff to ruffle your feathers. Um, it's just not. It's just not true. We're just not persecuted folks in any way comparable to the way other people have been. And when Christians act like they're persecuted all the time, um, it's ridiculous and silly. Ridiculous. Um, like the fact that Starbucks doesn't put, you know, a, a manger scene on their Christmas cup, you know, get over it. You know, ridiculous. Uh, nonetheless, we are still promised that we will face trials and tribulations and difficulties and persecutions in this life by Jesus in John 15 and other places. That's the thing. We are going to face challenges and trials and difficulties. James says these famous words, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So if people that are threatened with their very lives for their faith can endure those trials, then we can certainly face the trials coming, on, coming our way. That's how we can apply a passage like this today to us when we're not facing the same sorts of persecution. Why is it that we can face it? Because the same God who gives strength to the, to the martyrs is the same God who gives strength to you today and to all of his children to endure any kind of suffering they come across in this life. So what must we have as Christians to deal with these challenges that come up against us? Well, in our passage, Peter mentions five things in verse 8. Characteristics of your work. He says, um, he says, first, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And we're just going to stop there, focus on that for the rest of our time. Interesting thing about this verse in Greek is it does not say, finally, all of you have unity of mind, but rather, finally, all of one mind, sympathetic, brotherly loving, compassionate, humble-minded, etc. In other words, Peter is not so much commanding us to do something, but he's making a declaration about what the people he is writing to are rather than what they must be. This is so key. So when you read these words in English, 
we tend to think of, okay, I got to make sure I strive for this thing. That's all well and good. But actually, Peter's going more than that. He's saying, this is who you are. This is who you will be. And this is the kinds of things that God has given you in Christ in order to endure the suffering. Now, doesn't that understanding change everything about your perspective when you come to a verse like this? When you see that actually this is more promise than it is a threat or exhortation, this is promise. This is what you are, Christian. You are those who are first united of mind. That's the first characteristic he mentioned, or single-mindedness. Now, of course, upon hearing that, you may be tempted to say, well, I don't know about that. I don't see a whole lot of unity sometimes in single-mindedness in the church. All you need to do is go on the old Twitter and see that there's not a whole lot of kumbaya amongst Christians a lot of the time. And it's true that when we look at the history of the church, we don't see a lot of unity either. And yet it is a fact. It is. It's not disputable that in Christ, we are all in fact one. All who are in Christ are in fact part of his one body. It doesn't mean they're always going to agree. It doesn't mean they're always going to get along. It doesn't mean they're always going to have warm fuzz. We are all in one body together. Now, in his high priestly prayer found in John 17, Jesus says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know what you, that you sent me and love them even as you love me. The idea is not that we can't disagree about something. Even Paul and Barnabas disagreed about things in the book of Acts. But that when we do, we still work no better, strive for unity. So yes, unity of mind is something we will have because we're part of one body. It doesn't mean we're always going to have it. I'm sorry, Lisa, I can't see your comment, but, um, but I actually do know what you're talking about. Being a church planner in New York City, believe me, I understand how difficult it is to sometimes share the gospel. But in any way to compare what I go through uh, trying to preach the gospel in New York City to the persecution of people that are getting crucified, uh, quite literally, I think is quite a stretch. Um, so let me move on. So second thing, uh, sympathy. That's what we're told we are given. Sympathy. If we are united, then naturally we will be sympathetic to one another and for that matter to others even outside of the church. In order to be a church that can endure trials and difficulties, we must be sympathetic towards one another's problems. As the Apostle Paul says, we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice because we are one body under one head, Jesus Christ. As Christians, we seek to put ourselves in the place of others. Number three, third promise, brotherly love. If we are of one mind and sympathetic towards one another, then surely displaying brotherly love is, is not a stretch. We're family and we're to live like it. We take care of each other. We look out for each other. We're concerned for one another in a way that the world is to look at and say, wow. As 1 John 3.14 says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. 
In other words, love for the brothers is part of what it means. It's a promise that will come. It will be built into us as new creations in Christ. We need a tender heart, Peter says. That's another way of saying compassionate or feeling, actually taking the time to feel what another goes through. Again, 1 John says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? A tender heart has to move into action for the sake of the brother or sister in need. And finally, Peter says we are promised to be given a humble mind. And that's what we're told we have in Christ Jesus. I can't help but think of Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says this, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Maybe the hardest command in all of Scripture. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A number of years ago, my friend sent me a little note he had received from his pastor at the time. My friend was looking to go into pastoral ministry himself, and the note had been sent to a number of seminary students as well. And I'll never forget the first sentence of it because it struck me. And then, I mean, it was just these little groups of sentences because it was so contradictory to what you'd often read in sort of manuals on how to do church and on how to be a pastor and on how to, uh, you know, prepare for ministry well. And this is what it said. This isn't all of it, but this is just the beginning of it. Embrace the theology of the cross. Resist the temptation to count the people. Take your hits. You can't win. You can't make it work. No matter how gentle and kind, articulate and patient, you will lose. Now, this is written to a bunch of <laughs> students about ready to go out into the church. I mean, this is like, this does not sound very motivational. But then he concludes, the gospel always loses. That is how it wins. The way that Peter tells us that we're going to endure trials, difficulties, is oftentimes going to feel like we are losing. It's going to pound against our flesh. It's going to make our sinful nature inflamed with a desire to get even, to get vengeance, to want to fight back, to defend my rights, etc. I mean, we are, that is what we want. And what Peter is saying is, no, the gospel always loses. That is how it wins. Jesus looked like he was losing on the cross and at the very moment he was 
quote-unquote most lost, most defeated, most agonized, most humbled, most pathetic-looking. God was most glorified. The angels of heaven were shouting at the top of their lungs for the victory that was being had right before their eyes. So we, too, are cross-bearers, and for some reason, somehow, some way, God is going to win through the bearing of our crosses. This is what Christian faith says. Even when the trial gets really hard, even when you feel like the heat is getting way too hot in that pressure cooker, God is winning in Jesus Christ. He has won the victory. But the victory is not won through flash or self-exaltation. It is done through the humiliation of his cross and eventually the resurrection from the dead. And the victories in, over trials in your life will come the same way. So that's it for today. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the week. God bless you. And we will see you next Tuesday.